This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Walking Each Other Home is an exploration of the many ways we cultivate wisdom, compassion, and love in our lives. Mirabai Bush talks with some of her many diverse friends about what they're learning now from their spiritual paths and practices. If you would like to support this podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Mirabai. Welcome, everyone. I'm Mirabai Bush, and this is Walking Each Other Home, and we'd like to do that together with you for the next hour or so. We, um, the, this series brings together a number of diverse people who are all talking about ways in which they are waking up and uh, coming into spiritual deepening, and how we... Uh, share that with and help each other along the path. We can't do this alone, and um, we can really help each other. Uh, And not always by, you know, being physically with each other or calling each other on the phone, but simply being in each other's lives and doing the work that we do uh, with integrity. Um, So... That's what unifies the many people who've come together so far. And today we have a wonderful guest, um, Iris Brilliant. And um, I've known Iris since she was born, which is (laughs) a real honor. And uh, now she's... uh, Now she's one of the people who I think knows the most about the... Um, working with your resources, your wealth, um, in alignment with your values. And, of course, Ramdas's teaching all has to do with discovering your values and then cultivating them and uh, living your life in that way. So, and not so many people have, you know, focused on, uh, on money and wealth and possessions, uh, and the um, uh, inequity of of wealth in this society in relation to uh, what's important to each one of us. And I really feel like um, Iris has done an amazing uh, job, isn't the word, but she has an amazing understanding <laughs> of of how that all works. And 
I wanted to hear more, and I think it'll be it'll be great. Even if you don't have a lot of money or don't think you have a lot of money, mm-hmm. we all have to deal with money all the time. And we all have resources other than money as well that we need to um, appreciate and value so that we can use them in the best the way that's best for us and for everyone. So um, that's what we're going to talk about today. And uh, so let's, um, let's see. Iris, why don't you uh, tell us a few lines of your, of your biography in terms of how you got to where we are now? You know, it doesn't have to be the traditional right. stuff. But uh, what brought you to where we are now, where you are now? Thank you so much for having me. I've been really excited to get to do this together. Um, A bit about my money journey in particular. So I was raised wealthy. I grew up with class privilege without really being aware of it because of the lack of dialogue and transparency about money and class. And also because of class segregation, right? I grew up with predominantly wealthy, if not wealthier people. Um, and felt very confused about class and money and just grew up with the sense that it wasn't something we could discuss, but it was something that we should feel some degree of shame or privacy around. Um, I got deeply politicized in college, as many of us do, um, around racial justice organizing, feminist and queer organizing, and got trained as an organizer Um, became an anti-capitalist and also began a a pretty strong Dharma practice as well. I went on my first meditation retreat when I was 18, um, which really changed my life. So that confluence of just developing my own spiritual practice and way of looking at the world through a lens of not wanting to harm in conjunction with developing an analysis of oppression and systemic change. Um, But nobody in those movements in college wanted to talk about class or money. Um, So I kind of just repressed that part of my background. And then when I was 22, uh, my mom unexpectedly inherited money from her uncle, who through the GI Bill, which predominantly went to white veterans, Mm. um, was able to amass some money, which he invested in oil, tobacco, and war, as you do in the stock market. Mm -hmm as you do. And through those investments in oil and tobacco and war, I inherited that that money from him. And once that money was in my name, and I also graduated debt-free in college, which really put me in a different class position than my my peers. Mm -hmm. Once that money was in my name in these corporations that I was organizing against, I knew I could no longer avoid dealing with money in class. And I, um, I, I had, I had a, a, yeah, I, I had a reckoning with that. And at the same time, my beloved brother, John, um, was diagnosed with stage four cancer unexpectedly. And he was only 25 at that time. And then he died shortly after when he was 26. And so the money came into my name, my brother, the unthinkable happened, which was my brother died unthinkable in part because he was my brother and we, you know, had a promise to live together forever um, and also unthinkable because of the myths that wealth and academic success had created 
that someone who had a Fulbright scholar who had a 4.0 at Columbia University was destined for great, you know, success and a long life. And that was a lie and he died. Yeah. And that, that deeply, deeply politicized me around the lies that we had been taught about class and money. Mm. And uh, the last thing I'll say is I, I then worked at Resource Generation for five years, a nonprofit that organizes young people with wealth to support the redistribution of land, wealth, and power. And then I left RG to become a money coach because I really wanted to do a deeper um, personal transformation space. I wanted to offer that type of space for people with wealth to redistribute, to divest, but to also rethink who we are as people and what roles we want to play in the world and untangle, disentangle the, mm. the confusing mix of messages around money and belonging and self-worth and all these other things that come up around money and class. So that's why I'm here. That's great, really. Um, and before we go further into money and class, although they're related, um, would you tell us um, a little bit about how you knew Ram Dass and what, yeah. what he meant to you, what you remember about him? Absolutely. So I grew up next door to Ram Dass um, in Marin County. He was my brother's godfather. Mirabai is my godmother. <laughs> <laughs> um, so was really fortunate to have this web of spiritual teachers in my life as a child. Um, and then after his stroke, when he then moved to Maui, my brother, John, um, in between chemo treatments would go and stay with him and as just a, a refuge, um, to recover in. And after John died, I took his ashes all over the world. And one of the places I took them to was to Maui and, um, we, me and Dasima, Ram Das's beyond caretaker. I don't know exactly what know it. her role is. She's so much more than a caretaker. Um, we planted his ashes and we planted this mango tree. And so then every year after his death, after John's death, I would go stay with Ram Dass and spend time with John's mango tree and spend time with Ram Dass and talk about death and mortality and illness and control and, you know, all of the wonderful things that if you're lucky, you get to talk to Ram Dass about. And our last visit, um, last time I saw Ram Dass, my favorite memory of his was just getting to join his weekly swim in the ocean yeah. where he and a bunch of people in his community um, will help carry him out into the sea and bring a bunch of flowers. And it's just basically seeing this like utter look of joy on his face as he gets to kind of surrender to the water with these beautiful flowers <laughs> around him is just such a, it's an image I'll never forget. Um, so, mm. yeah. Thank you. I just had that image again and him, yeah. saying, him saying, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Yeah. And then, oh joy, oh joy, oh joy. He really and loved I, I bet there are many other people having that image at this moment hearing you talk yeah. about it. Oh yeah. God, yes. <laughs> well, let's um let's start with this one. Um as you know, I just wrote a book with Ramdas on dying, and we looked a lot about the American way of uh denial, or it's not just American, but um uh, yeah. around denial around death and the the um 
pushing off of our fears around um, safety and death and um, the, the many complicated things we do in order to not um, acknowledge that we are going to die and that we don't know when we're going to die and, and that the very pushing it away in all these ways we do it keeps us from doing the very thing we should be doing in order to be able to die well and to live well in the moment. So um, I, one, one of the statements of yours um, that I liked was, there's no amount of wealth that will guarantee you will live a long, comfortable life. Yeah. Would you talk about that a little bit? I mean, yeah. that could be like, oh yeah, of course, but, but we talk about the levels at which we really do believe that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, firsthand, of course, I learned that the hard way through witnessing my brother die. But I've also learned that from, you know, I sit in on a lot of financial planning meetings between clients and their planners. And the design of finance, the design of financial planning is to grasp for control over these things we cannot control, such as our mortality, mm. illness divorce, everything, right? But to try to, the mentality and the design is if we can just set aside enough money for you, somehow you will live into old age. Somehow you will always be happy. Somehow your children will always love you and your children will be happy. And it's a, a lie and a myth that is sold as a part of financial planning. Um, and it's also embedded in, in the investment industry, right? In, in wealth management firms, in investment firms who are saying to you, you know, if you invest your money, the stock market yields some of the highest returns, right? You make the most money in general from the stock market. It has its up and ups and downs and it's incredibly volatile. But the, the, the myth that's being sold to you is if you invest in these extractive corporations and industries that are destroying the planet and the world, and you make that ethical compromise, you're going to have a lot more money later on and you'll be happier that you did it. So, so much for me when I think about finance is about avoiding mortality, is about fear and scarcity. Um, and when we make decisions about anything from a fear and scarcity place, we're not going to make the most ethical decisions. Um so I see that a key obstacle that arises for clients who have social justice values, who believe in social justice movements and want to give away money, and they'll start giving and then they'll hit this point where they suddenly have this look of terror on their faces when I encourage them to increase because I know that they can give away more money. <laughs> and that look of terror can be about so many of things, so many things. And often it's about facing mortality and facing the unknown because this money has been a buffer for so many of us raised wealthy or who now have access to more money than we need. It's a buffer from having to deal with some of life's hardships, right? And so it summons an amount of courage and trust that we can increase our giving um, and still deal with life's hardships. So yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot there on that topic. Um, and one other thing I'll say is that I do believe that investing in certain corporations that are causing death, right? Like when we invest in, in deforestation, fossil fuel companies, companies that manufacture weaponry and prisons, 
we are invested in death. We are invested in, mm. um, in destruction. And what, how is that really going to be worth it to us for the sake of a sense that we'll have more financial abundance in the future? We could stop there and we'd still, we'd have a lot to think about. <laughs> <laughs> An- another um, statement that you made um, is um, definitions of enoughness mm-hmm. vary dramatically across class, revealing how they are subjective and irrational. And I just want to, it made me think of so many things. And um, it's how my beginning understandings of what is enough um, mm-hmm. and about how less is more um, were. You know, I lived on a commune for a while in British Columbia in the late 60s. And um, there, you know, we'd been uh, we'd been PhD students and, you know, we lived in the city and we had everything we needed. And uh, there we were, you know, cooking over open fires and washing our clothes in the stream and uh, living in teepees and um, uh, gathering wild berries, you know. And I don't, I, le- I left from there to go to India, and I'm not sure how long I would have survived there. But mm-hmm. what really, what really showed me was like being like close to the land and close to, you know, the basic human needs. We yeah. could put up a structure, you know, and simply, and we could um, wash our clothes in the stream. And um, it made me feel more at home on the planet and made me realize I did not, I might want those other things, but you know, I didn't need what I thought I needed. That was a big awakening. And then going on retreat, I think for a lot of us, you started out by talking about that. You know, what I love about being on, especially like meditation retreats is you're in this room with a cot and maybe a chair and there's a nearby bathroom and you have everything you need and nothing else. And I loved that, you know. It's just without anybody saying anything, it's just a reminder that you're completely fine yeah. with just what you need and nothing else. So, um, yeah. Uh, uh, one, one more thing was that um, co- this COVID time for a year and a half, showed me I needed a lot less than I thought I needed. Yeah. Oh, my God. I didn't buy anything for a year and a half. It was great. And I didn't need to. And I didn't. And now I've changed a lot of my patterns, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, yeah. So talk to us about enoughness and um, knowing how dramatically it, yeah. that's held by different people. And people within classes also. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think your story is so powerful about how settled and eased you felt having just the cot and the bathroom and the simple room. I do think it's stressful to have much more than we need. I think excess is stressful. And it's not to say, oh, woe is me. You know, I feel so bad for people with privilege. But I do think there is a stress that can come with having too much. Um, 
And especially in a world in which most people don't have enough, it creates an inherent, I think, form of suffering, especially for those of us who have empathy, who have access to empathy, um, and who care deeply about being in solidarity with others. So, and yeah, I see wildly different assessments about what enoughness is, you know, because we live in this capitalist system in which you really can, there's just such a huge variety of what people earn, of what people have access to, and of how much money people spend. And there aren't really any rules out there. We're kind of just, if you have the money, you can go wild with your spending with really no consequences. It's just kind of a strange economic system that we're in. And so I have had a client who spends, um, I've had clients who spend a range of, you know, $20,000 a year to $350,000 a year. That's a profound range with no consequences and no real, nothing to bump up, but nobody telling you to to narrow in your your spending, right? Um, I have client, you know, I, I know people in the world who do not have wealthy backgrounds who believe that if they had $50,000, they would feel like the richest person in the world. And then I have clients who have Um, you know, $20 million, but are afraid to give away a million dollars. So I think that, and then as I, you know, the article that Mirabai is referencing is the article that I published recently about the vicious cycle of wealth accumulation and the five pillars of true safety and security beyond money. Um, And in that cycle, I talk about how it it creates this feedback loop. If I grow up as I did, accustomed to immense material comforts and privilege, anything less than that is going to feel like, feel uncomfortable to me because I've been trained into expecting a degree of comfort. If I grow up, uh, and that then informs my sense of enoughness and what feels safe and what feels okay to give away, but it doesn't really have any bearing with reality. As you said, what do we need to survive? We need food, we need shelter. We need a cot to lie down on. We need community. We need meaning and belonging too, I would add. Um, we need medicine. We need access to healthcare. The things beyond that are all questionable and up in the air. And, and there's also a, a wild variety of how we can address those needs with different price tags too. Um, so there is no clear, you know, one and done answer about enoughness. Um, but I think that it's each of our responsibility, especially for those of us in the U.S., and especially for those of us who have access to even a little bit more money than we we might need, to to really critically examine these questions for ourselves. Yeah, I I like that somewhere you quoted around this Abby Disney saying, you know, <laughs> if you go from co- coach to business to first class. You're never going to want to go back to coach. <laughs> you should get used to it, you know. And then it feels like a hardship. But uh, um, so being, I think, in terms of of um, waking up, practice yeah. really helps you see your own mind, you know, and it helps you see that. Oh my God, I think I have to have first class. <laughs> what am I thinking? You know. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And one other thing I'll say about this, just, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the second precept and about not stealing. Um, And 
of course, you know, our mind goes to obvious places about what that means. Like, yeah, I won't go into store and and shoplift. I won't, you know, (laughs) steal cash from your drawer or whatever. But what does it mean to exist in a world with a finite amount of resources and with massive inequities and to keep more money than you truly need, right? I think there's an argument to be made that it is a form of theft to keep money, keep more money than we need because we're afraid um, to inherit money that we did nothing to earn and to not consider redistribution and to not consider reparations. So I think that if we apply that, you know, just thinking about that precept and, and with money, right? How do we really honor all of the precepts and how we think about money? Um, and in particular, this, this question of theft and where does your money come from to begin with, right? You, you can't just, it doesn't just come from nowhere. It doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from the labor of others, it comes from other people creating that money that you then got into your hands through whatever ways that you did. And for me, like I said, the money that I inherited, you know, was stolen from so many different communities. Um, and so I do think there's kind of a, um, an ethical question that we get to explore about how to honor these precepts through looking at our finances. Yeah. No, I really like that. I mean, just seeing it as an, as this opportunity to wake up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. How great. Instead of a burden that we carry, which also that, but you know, um, and there's joy in moving money. Oh, there's so big joy. Much joy and liberation <laughs> in finally like dealing with this thing you've been avoiding and then looking at where your money is invested and feeling joy and delight and knowing it's building a future that you would be thrilled to participate in, in giving away money and funding movements that are fighting so hard to improve the lives of millions of people, giving gifts to your friends, right? It feels good. I know it's cheesy, mm-hmm. but it it's not only good, yeah. but it it feels there's a, you know, like in the article, the self-trust, it builds self-trust, that empowerment sense that you are leading a values aligned life is, is um, yeah, there's no amount of money that can, is worth more than that feeling. So. Yeah. I'm glad you know that and said that I, you know, for years, <clears throat> excuse me, um, for the 10 years I worked in Guatemala with Seva, and then all these years at the Center for Contemplative Mind, I've always been raising money, right? And um, often people would say, I don't want, I hate to fundraise. I don't want to do that, you know? And it's, it's hard. Not many people do. It's very hard to find anybody who loves it and understands it and, and is good at it. And I, so I was kind of forced to figure out why it was I really liked doing it, you know? And I can remember those moments, you know? of real joy when I, because whatever I was raising it for, I mean, I'd come out of these Guatemalan villages where they had absolutely nothing and uh, know that just such a small amount of money from the North could really help. And um, and it would be a struggle to do it because people up here didn't really know what was going on down there and they really care about it. Um, and then when I'd be able to do that, to shift the money from here to there, it it was really joyful. And mm. and it really had to do with, you know, aligning uh, the person with the wealth 
aligning their values with the values that I was working with in trying to make change in, in other places that didn't have money. And so exploring all that together, I, I got great happiness out of that mm. role. Yeah. So thank you for that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so you were leading into, and that does too, but, or, or coming up against um, the importance of community. Mm. And um, I, uh, I'm focusing on individual safety and survival creates less safety mm-hmm. for everyone. And I'll just tell you one thing before, it just came to mind when we were working in Guatemala and we first went there, um, we uh, were welcomed into this village and they told us their whole story and you know, it was, they had, they were in devastating conditions. And um, so we were, this was Jahanara and me, and I forget who else was there that day. And um, we were so moved by it, and we really wanted to do something. And um, we thought, uh, we'll go home, and we'll raise some money. So, and we tried to talk to them about what they would do first and what it would cost and all of that. And um, we decided somehow that, unbelievably, that $40,000 would um, be able to uh, help support this village for one year, for everybody in the village, for mm-hmm. one year. And um, and they could get going rebuilding their houses and their land and so on. Um, so we said that, and we said that we would go home and try to raise that. And they said, and we thought they'd be like so happy. You know, they said, well, we couldn't just take it for our village because they were in this, this connection. I forget what exactly what it was called, but a, some collaboration among nine villages. And they said, if you give us that money, these are Mayan people um, who understood. They didn't even, they didn't have a concept of themselves as individuals separate from community. And, uh, they said, but if you give us that money, we're, we will share it with all nine villages. And we were thinking, well, then nobody would have really enough to do anything. And I don't, we don't think that's a good idea, <laughs> kind of, you know, until we, like, got it. We said, yeah. oh, my God. <laughs> oh, that's really amazing. And so, of course, what we did was we came home and we raised 40 times nine. <laughs> so... They taught me so much about community and how th- the strength of that. They had nothing, but they had community. And they rebuilt their lives and their homes. And They didn't yeah. have nothing. Having community is pretty valuable. Yeah, well, yeah. that's what I mean. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, talk a little about, about the relationship of the individual and the community and resources and safety. Yeah. Well, um, you know, again, in part, this article came in response to seeing some of the um, the shortcomings of financial planning and short kind of limitations and imagination that I see and that I personally have struggled with around thinking about safety and security in a financial context. And it's just interesting, the default messages that were taught, again, especially people in the United States, 
even more so for those of us who are white and 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 also for those of us who are wealthy the the fantasy that we're painted is for you and your nuclear family to own a home just you all right to save enough money for just you all to retire and those are the key financial goals that most people have um but it's just i want to question and rethink that default norm because like in the example that you shared right why can't we cast a bigger net around who we care about and who we want to incorporate into our financial planning, right? Even if we just go one layer out around, okay, I want to make sure that um, my cousins and my you know broader family is going to be taken care of um, and nourished and supported in their older age, or that we understand we have a shared safety net should anyone experience a health crisis or something like that. Um, but why not continue to even expand that beyond just the fan, the, the blood family, um, and to also incorporate communities, you know, something that I like to suggest to people is to at minimum match your retirement contributions with a contribution to a climate justice organization, mm-hmm. right? So that we can have, uh, a planet that, that we'll be able to retire on, uh, bring your friends into your retirement planning. Right, especially your friends who don't have the same level of access to wealth uh, and material safety that you might have. And when we do that, and when we broaden our sense of who we care about, we're feeding into this web of interconnection that will also then take care of us inherently, right? And I, I find it to be more scary and isolating and also just kind of empty feeling to just think about myself, to just think about like, who am I, Iris, on a little island? You know, what do I need when I'm 65? What do I need when I'm 75? What do I need next year? What do I need tomorrow? That it it builds into this narrative of isolation from other people. Um, and especially in a world that's as volatile and scary as it is today, at least I think my generation is deeply feeling uh, like the promises of the future that other generations were given probably won't come to us because of the climate crisis and because of mm-hmm. living in late stage capitalism, I think a lot of us are facing, and most of us don't have enough money to retire. Most of us do not have these yep. safety nets. Most of us have horrendous debt. So as a generation of people who are mostly in debt, um, where the future is so unknown, I really want us to move towards supporting one another and saying, hey, you know, right now this person has more money than than they need. It can flow into the community and vice versa. And I don't mean to be utopian and, you know, like I, I understand there's things we need to take into account and be thoughtful about with money and also in creating these contracts. It's not all easy. It's quite hard, actually, to talk to other people about money in class, um, especially if you're not accustomed to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think there's a beautiful opportunity of just bringing other people into our sense of well-being. Like we, you wouldn't just think about your emotional well-being separate from your friends and from <laughs> your community and from. That's so why would we think about our financial well-being as separate from our friends and our community? Hmm. Well, we're talking about friends and family and expanding. Um, I guess you're saying this. I've been I've been thinking about the idea of um, personal reparations. Now, this is expanding into um, the 
for white Americans into the mm-hmm. African-American community, but just giving away money to mm-hmm. individuals. Mm-hmm. Not, um, I mean, we, we know, those of us who know, <laughs> know that it's good to support organizations in that realm that are led by um, black leadership and that are, you know, um, mm-hmm. shifting um, resources in many different ways. Mm-hmm. But but you, but you touched on it with saying just like, you know, make sure your cousin has enough money or um, just giving money to your friends or, you know, who, who don't have as much. Um, I, I only thought about this in the last couple of years and yeah. started doing it. So, um, yes. Do you have thoughts about that? I do. I'm so glad you're bringing this up. There's so much beautiful work happening in the world of reparations, both to support black led organizations and also indigenous led organizations I really want to lift up the work of Edgar Villanueva, who formed Liberated Capital, which is a new reparations fund um, that redistributes money to different movements across the United States that are led by um, Black and Brown uh, individuals um, with a focus on reparations. And there's also a huge, beautiful donor community that folks can get involved in who want to learn about reparations, who want to learn about unpacking white supremacy. Um, They're just, I can't, I can't endorse them enough. And I really recommend everyone listening right now, consider giving a gift to them and getting involved. Um, I think there's a lot of different ways to approach reparations. Um, The first being to look back at our own story. Where did your money come from and which communities was it extracted from? Even if you don't have access to wealth, right? If you are a white person or if you aren't Black or Indigenous to this land, what are ways in which your family has socially benefited from anti-Black racism, right? Or even just living on this land, which was stolen from Indigenous communities. We're all part of this really dark and um, violent history, regardless of our personal dignity and values. We're just kind of born into this history. So we all have work to do there around looking at that history, if we link it to money, I encourage folks to give money back to the communities it was extracted from, to incorporate that reparations framework into your giving. Better yet, why not communicate that story to the people, to the organizations you're giving to? Not to paint yourself as the hero, but of just to name Part of reparations is naming the harm that happened Mm. and noting the actions that you're taking to address that harm. And I have one client whose money comes from more directly from, she's a descendant of slave owners. And um, in working with her, was able to support her to move millions of dollars into Black-led organizing and reparations work in the South and in particular in the state where her... um, ancestors owned slaves. And in in addition to that, in addition to the beautiful process of her getting to move this money, also got to work together on how to communicate transparently and directly with these groups of saying, my money came from the theft Mm -hmm. of wealth from your ancestors. And I am here to own that legacy. And I'm here to offer healing to my legacy by telling you the truth this about this dark history of my people. 
and how I am linked to you and how I'm indebted to you. And that is why I'm giving you this money. And to add in that story, because part of reparations, part of repair is around naming and acknowledging the harm that was caused in addition to taking action to address it. So we don't just talk about it. We also do things. Um, So I really encourage folks as much as you can discover these things about your story and your lineage to also speak those stories and to normalize addressing reparations. We don't need to then get mired in guilt and shame, um, especially when it comes to our ancestors. We didn't choose the actions that they chose, but we get to take responsibility for them and we get to move forward with a commitment to prevent future harm from happening and to address harm that was caused in the past. So give to liberated capital (laughs) and give to other reparations focused organizations. It's not just about giving to individuals. It's also about giving to groups that are fighting for reparations on, on policy levels and, and fighting to make different policies that will improve the lives of uh, black and Brown communities in this country too. So. That's great. Um, And you'll include some links um, for the people can follow. Uh, after absolutely this. i'll send you some resources that'd be great absolutely that'd be great because yes. i do think it's an area where um people are not quite sure where to go or what to do although they may have good intentions i got you i will help make it easy for you okay <laughs> great um let's see um yeah, you you also talked about how um, wealth accumulation can um, ke- keep you from cultivating inner resilience. Um, that if we have uh, lots of financial resources, we often tend to lean on those to use those instead of cultivating our um, our capacities for being in community for developing skills we can offer to others and uh, for deep Dharma skills that we can use for uh, helping ourselves feel safe in as much as anything is safe. Um, Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. You know, and it's so similar to the, the story you shared about when we're on retreat and we're living a slightly more austere life, um, the ways in which, first of all, we get to feel that sense of ease of simplicity, but also things get really uncomfortable, right? Yeah, like yeah. I've been on, I sat on a 30 day retreat. Oh, um, you did. I sat on a 30 day retreat. Congratulations. Once. It was very <laughs> uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It was very, very hard <laughs> and uncomfortable. Um, But I left with so much more inner resilience and strength as a result of being with all the uncomfortable things. I think I had a poison oak at one point um, and uh, plus just the troubles of my mind that I had to be with for weeks on end. But I left with this inner sanctuary, right? The sense of like, you know, I got through that. I live to tell the tale and I now know how to face those incredibly uncomfortable, emotional and physically challenging 
experiences without paying for a way to get out or without distracting myself from it. So when we're denied those opportunities to face hardships head on and to have to tap into our inner resilience and resourcefulness, um, like what Abigail Disney said, right? She doesn't have to deal with the long lines at the airport and her flight getting canceled and all, you know, deal with COVID exposure by flying private. Her That's more, she mentioned uh-huh. flying private yeah, yeah. beyond just first class. So you lose your sense of, of resilience when you are constantly comfortable. I don't mm-hmm. think it's good for us to be constantly comfortable physically, materially, emotionally, because then we are not growing. And so I think, um, you know, as someone who was raised with wealth, I was, um, I always had a way out. I always had a way out. If I was doing poorly in a class, I could just pay for a tutor, pay Mm -hmm. for someone to come in and save the day Mm. rather than face some of my inadequacies or my struggles around a particular topic. You know, if I miss a flight, I'll just keep talking about airports for whatever reason, (laughs) even though I haven't flown for a year and a half. If I miss a flight, no big deal. I'll just buy another ticket. There's no consequences. So therefore I don't need to change or adjust my behavior. I don't need to develop skills and resourcefulness. And um, I think this is one of the ways that wealth accumulation, it it actually causes us harm and it inhibits our ability to unleash our our power um, and our connection with ourselves and others because it's like we're living in a room full of, full of, uh, filled with pillows, you know, <laughs> we're just kind of have all of these pillows around us, which at first might feel comfortable, but then you kind of are like, dang, I don't want to just be like, my back kind of hurts from lying on these, these pillows are too soft. You know, I got to kind of get out into the world and and be with people and deal with things. So that's kind of how I, how I see it. Well, I know you're right. And and um, it's interesting because hardly anybody ever talks about the shadow side of money. It's always positive. And um, but yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a time when I was looking at the people I kind of cared about the most and liked being with. And I realized that I was drawn to people who had suffered because they had those kinds of skills, appreciations, orientation toward life um, that was just expansive. And and I wanted to be around that. I felt safer around people who've gone through suffering because uh, they have cultivated those those aspects that you're talking about. Mm. That's, I mean, I think that's. And they often have a really good sense of humor. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, because that is, that's a skill for for survival. Like Ram Dass. Yes. (laughs) Ram Dass was so amazing because he had had it all and then, um, and then he knew about having nothing. And uh, in fact, he, you know, he, he was really great at raising money and giving it away. And he gave, he, as soon as he would raise it, he'd give it away. So that when he had a stroke, 
You know, when he had a stroke, he was completely broke. He had no money at all. And he didn't have, he had lots of resources in the sense of who he was. But he didn't have a home. He didn't have a car, I don't think. He he didn't have anything. What he had were yeah. all, of, all of us who loved him and yeah. were going to make sure that he got taken care of. But Exactly. Um, uh, but uh, which exactly. so he's like a perfect exemplar for <laughs> for um for what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, what else do you want to say? We had a few minutes more left, reliable but... than the stock market. You know. Yes. Our... Yes. Mm-hmm. I th- I think that's so important to say. So that's not to say that we shouldn't all yeah. have enough, so that. Well, for one thing, we don't, as we age, do you know anybody who's aging? Yeah. So um, as we get old, (laughs) it's, and I won't go into my whole story, but what I know is it's not good to not have anything because then even if you have wonderful friends and community, you don't really want them to have to take total care of you for your last X number of years. So it is good, of course, to have a little stash to take care of yourself as you go forward. Um, But just to return to, you know, we're talking about excess and how we don't, we don't always see it as excess. So question, you know, um, yeah, keep questioning. Mm. What else? I appreciate you mentioning this, Mirabai, because you know, I am so used to just speaking to a wealthy audience, but I really want to um, echo what you said. We do need to learn about how money works. Um, we do need to be thoughtful about our finances and plan for the future. Um, and so I don't mean to d- diminish that importance yeah, yeah, I know. around taking ourselves into consideration mm-hmm. too, around enoughness and around becoming financially literate. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. And I guess um, the last things that I just wanted to say, if that's okay. Can you still hear me? Um, So in addition to just some call to actions, things to consider in leaving this session, this conversation. um, One is I really want to encourage any Dharma teachers, any spiritual leaders to consider talking about money in your communities to consider bringing this into your curriculum and the practice, because we, most of us struggle to think well about money. We need guidance. Probably a lot of the teachers in in meditation and spiritual communities also need help and support around that. So we'll show the areas you need to grow. Um, But to find ways of talking about money in your community Um, And there's so many people with access to wealth in different spiritual communities, too, who I know could use a hand in moving money. And the more we just normalize talking about money, talking about wealth inequalities and classism and reparations, right? I think it's such an essential part of spiritual growth and spiritual healing. And for those of you who are practitioners on the call and students, for you to, you know, look at your finances with the same level of care and thoughtfulness that you look at the words that you use, you know, when you're talking to people, 
right? And you look at the the other, you know, we we scrutinize our behavior um, as spiritual people, hopefully through lines of ethics. And we should do that too with money. Um, and also volunteer our time and our skills, right? It's not just about money, but it's just about it's time and showing up for the future that we want to be building. Um, and so I think those are my main call to actions and I'll, um, I would love to go on a meditation retreat and have people talk about money and have people talk about giving in more specificity mm-hmm. and have people talk about all these other things, retirement, all the things you're naming. Mm-hmm. I would love that. That's great. Well, maybe you will lead it. We'll see. <laughs> um, Iris, Could I be. Lo- could be. <laughs> I loved this conversation. I loved it. And I really appreciate you talking to us and also all the work you've done. And I know you're just beginning. I can hear from the way you express your thoughts that they're open-ended and, and uh, you're going to keep investigating. So thank you. Thank you so much. And there'll be... Um, thank you so much, Mirabai. <laughs> And for all of you that on the page, on the website, um, you will find Iris's bio and contact information and and links to, to the various organizations that she talked about. So thanks for listening. Bye. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.